0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning and happy new year. I would love for you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 beginning at verse 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at about 82 million verses today. So the best way for you to follow along is to use the UVersion app. It's a free app. Go in there. You can click. You can find events and you'll see all of the verses that we're going to talk about today. And I really want to encourage you uh, to do that. You might, even, you might even respond on the app. There's actually a place where you can put notes. There's a place where you can make highlights. It's a really useful tool to help you engage in scripture. And one of my favorite things about the UVersion app is seeing the way people in our church body interact with the app. And, and like when you highlight a verse, uh, I can see that. If we're friends on YouVersion, uh, we can see it when we highlight verses, when we make notes. And it's just a really encouraging thing. So I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to utilize uh, that, that app as a tool. If we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church. And whether this is your first Sunday here, or you've been here for 82 million Sundays, um, I'm glad you're here today. One of my favorite things about the month of January is the opportunity to to be reminded of of the things that we're about as a church, um, to be able to talk about the things that we're about as a church. And each year, we kind of do that through, through the lens that we talk about four different things. We talk about gathering and giving and serving and going. And it's important to know that each one of these things are in response to the gospel. Pastor Zane last week talked about how, even though it's a new year, it's the same gospel. We only have one gospel. And the way that we live out that gospel as a church really is through those four things we gather, we give, we serve and we go. And, and when I use the word church, I'm not talking about church as organization. I'm talking about us. So when I say the way we as a church manifest those things, I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the way that we do things, the behaviors and practices that we do. In late 1995, Ann and I walked into Marysville Christian Church in Marysville, Ohio. We had, we had grown up in the church, and we had no real relationship with Jesus. And that's a long story. I'd love to tell you about it sometime. But we walked into Marysville Christian Church, and what we, what we found was a church that focused on teaching scripture, and God used that, God used the focus on scripture to, to transform us, to change us. But that wasn't it. There was there was another component that God used to transform us through the scripture, and that other component, that additional component was gathering was through being present on Sunday mornings and hearing God's Word. That, that created all sorts of tensions in us because, as I said, we did grow up in the church, so we kind of thought we knew everything that was going on in the Bible. And we had a pastor who just read through Scripture, and it was, it was, uh, it was disarming, it was uh, frustrating, it was encouraging. There were parts where we were, where we were angered, where we were like, "Why? how come we've never heard these things before? So the gathering was really important, but it wasn't just the Sunday morning gathering. We had a group of other believers. We had a group of believers from that church that we also gathered with, and that was called a small group. And that group... Allowed us to bring our. I'm going to use the word 82 million a lot. The phrase 82 million a lot today. Um, That small group allowed us to bring our 82 million questions into that group and ask them. So when we were when we were disarmed by Scripture, when we were angry by with Scripture, when we were upset over the things that we were hearing, when we didn't understand them, we had a venue. We had a place where we could ask those questions. And the great thing about that group is no one made us feel stupid for asking them. They were 100% comfortable with with the transformation that God was working in us taking as long as it took. And for us, that that meant asking questions. so... So the gathering, both Sunday morning and beyond Sunday morning, was critical for us. And I would say, truthfully, I mean, God, God could have done what he wanted to. God was, well, God always does what he wants to. God could have done what he wanted to in that situation. But I can say, if it weren't for that situation, if it weren't for the, the scripture plus the gathering, we wouldn't be here in this room. I, I certainly don't think this is where I would be in my life. Almost, okay. Ninety-five, 2000, 2005, got to be careful what hanger I hold up, 2015, 2000, so almost 30 years ago, right? Almost 30 years ago, I, I, I would not have imagined my, myself on this, on this stage. And it was because of God's word and it was because of the gathering. And that's what transformation is. That's what happens. I want to encourage you. Uh, let's look at Romans 12 verses 1 to 2. This is Paul. And so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them, your bodies, that's parentheses, your bodies, that's my addition, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This Parentheses. letting your bodies be a ho- living and holy sacrifice is truly the way to worship him. So we have questions, sidebar, 30 seconds. How do we worship God? What's the best way to worship God? What's the right way to worship God? Well, Paul tells us that offering our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice is truly the way to worship him. If you want to know how to worship God, what we're going to do is we're going to allow our bodies to be a living and holy sacrifice. Don't Copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So think about this for a minute, parentheses, it is through this process, through us giving our bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice, not in copying the behaviors and customs of this world, but by letting God transform us. See, when all of that happens, what Paul tells us, what God tells us through Paul, is then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So what Paul is talking about here, what God through Paul is talking about here, is there's a transformation that takes place. God does something. God does all the work. God does all the saving. The work on the cross did all of that. And yet, and yet there's transformation that takes place. And this transformation, according to what God through Paul is telling us in this text, takes place when we, when we allow God to make those changes in us. When we permit God to make those changes through us. I'm going to use that phrase, God through Paul, a lot. It's easy for us to forget that this is God's word. It's not Paul's word. God through Paul tells us four things in these verses. He says, transformation requires sacrifice. So if we want the sacrifice, or if we want the transformation that that God is offering, it's going to require something of us. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to be time, effort, and energy. This text also tells us that the world has a way of looking at things, and we are not to conform to that way. So the world has a way of looking at things. The world has a perspective, there's a worldview, there's an understanding that the world has when it comes to certain things, and as Christians, our job is to not be conformed to that way. Thirdly, we are to allow God to transform us into a new person by changing the way we think. So if we want to be transformed, we have to sacrifice, and then we have to, we have to think differently. We have to observe the ways that the world does things, the customs and behaviors of the world, and we have to think differently. And then, fourthly, finally, it's only through this transformation that we can learn to know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. I know that there are many of us, we want to know what God's will is for my life. What's God's will for my life? Where am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? What's my job? Who am I supposed to marry? All of those things. And what God through Paul is telling us in this text is the, the way to know that is to have your mind transformed, to participate in this transformation work along with God. Practically, what this looks like. We talked about this last week in our staff meeting. Man, I'm, just, I'm so glad that we're like back into a normal rhythm in the office where we get to read the text for what we're going to talk about on Sunday and, and have conversation about it. It's my favorite time of the week. Joe said this, thinking about this transformation. Joe said, I need to stop thinking about what I want. I want you, man, I want you to just let this sink in. I need to stop thinking about what I want. Sacrifice those things and give myself, my wants, my wishes, and desires over to the wants, wishes, and desires of God by changing the way I think. Which means something has to challenge my thought process. The way that we become transformed is by allowing something to challenge our thought process. So my tendency as a human being, as someone who's bent towards sin is to think a certain way about certain things. As a, as a person who lives in our world, because our world has an understanding of certain things, my tendency as a human being is to, is to think that that's the right way. And what I'll do, and this is, like, this is called confirmation bias. Maybe you've heard that phrase over the past several years. And what confirmation bias allows us to do is only find the things that agree with our worldview. And the second something counters our worldview, we have a tendency to to throw a shield up, to not listen to it, to not want to hear it, to not want to talk about it because it disagrees with us. But as Joe said last week, something has to challenge my thought process. The way that God is going to transform me is to challenge my thinking. And one of those somethings that God is going to use is, is the gathering, the gathering of believers. Picked up this book last year. It was one of the ones we gave away on Christmas Eve. Picked up this book last year called Gather, Loving Your Church as You Celebrate Christ Together. And in this book, it's, it's, on, it's honestly, it's an afternoon read I recommend you pick it up. He, he, gives, he gives at least seven reasons. He says there are at least seven reasons why the people of God are gathered for centuries. Seven reasons. Today we're going to talk about just five of them. Because the last two we're going to talk about at the end of the month. So we're going to talk about these five reasons today. And the first one is we gather to stir up one another. In the gathering, we stir up one another. And that's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And whoever the author of Hebrews, God through the author of Hebrews. I think it was Paul. That's just me. Let us... Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. See, the world would tell us, the world would tell us that the reason that we gather together is it's, it's sort of our religious duty. It's our, it's our check mark. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. So the behaviors and the customs of this world when it comes to this gathering is this is just a religious thing that we do. It's Sunday, I go to church. And then then to add to that some additional things that the world tells us about the gathering of believers is the world tells us that the golf course is my church. The world tells us that the lake is my church or the woods are my church or or for me, um, running along that path in front of the monument when it's 30 degrees. Believe it or not, like, that's amazing. Like, the world tells us that those things are our church. And with, with that on our mind, what that means is, I can just sit on my, I can sit on my back porch with my cup of coffee and my Bible... And I can convince myself that I'm having church. And I can convince myself that I don't need all of you people. Because my relationship with God is my relationship with God. It's it's vertical. There's nothing nothing horizontal about it. It's between me and God. But here's the thing. the The world could not be more wrong. So what we need to begin to do is when we hear the world's mindset of things we need to ask ourselves okay but is this true we need to hear something else one of the other things that joe said was i love this so much if i'm not in the gathering surrounded by god's people who are faithfully proclaiming the truth of the gospel to me how can i possibly know the difference between what the world says what i want to hear and the gospel See, when it's just me sitting on my back porch with my cup of coffee and my Bible. And I start thinking about, I wonder what this means. How how should I live this out? Wonder what this looks like in my life. My tendency is going to be to isolate. My tendency, because I'm not in relationship with other people, is I'm not going to have my mindset challenged. I'm not going to have anyone saying, yeah, but is that really it? sitting on my back porch drinking coffee with my Bible, there's no one to tell me that that's incorrect. I'm not saying you cannot encounter God sitting on your back porch, reading your Bible with a cup of coffee. I'm not saying you can't encounter God in the woods. I'm not saying that I can't encounter God running in front of the monument at 30 degrees. What I'm saying is that's not church. What I'm saying is that's not the point of the gathering. Because transformation happens in relationship. Transformation happens in relationship. We need to be with other people that we can engage in the text with. We can find transformation that we can be stirred up. Because frankly, sitting on my back porch with my Bible and my cup of coffee, that's not going to stir me up. Because I can close it, finish my coffee, and go about my day and not have to do anything differently. But when we gather together like this, and we talk about the things that we talk about all the time, gathering, giving, serving, going, like that's going to stir some of you up, right? That's some of that anxiety that you feel that we're going to talk about in a moment. But some of the reasons that we feel anxiety, when we feel tension, when we gather together as believers on a Sunday morning, we feel stirred up because that's like, this is what we're supposed to do together. We ought to be irritated at times on Sunday morning. We ought to be bothered. That's called being stirred up. And if it's just me and my Bible on the back porch with my cup of coffee, I don't, I'm not going to stir myself up. I'm not going to do that. Here's the second reason that we gather. We gather to hear God's word. This is 1 Timothy 4.13. This is the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. That God, through Paul, gives to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor in Ephesus, Brad. Until I get there, Paul's coming to Ephesus, and he's giving Timothy an instruction. Until I get there, until I get to Ephesus, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers, and teaching them. See, the world says that the Bible is a 2,000-year-old-plus book written by a bunch of stone-aged, patriarchal, and ignorant people who don't understand the real world. They don't know how things work. They don't understand anything about modern society. And if, if they were more progressive, they never would have written those things down. That's what, that's what the world says about reading the Bible. It's useless. It's purposeless. There's no meaning to it. We don't have to be obedient to it. It's hate-filled. So the world says about the Bible. But God uses the Bible to transform us. Every word useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that's another letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Jesus said that all Scripture points to him, which is why he used it post-resurrection to explain the resurrection. So after Jesus was resurrected, at least two times uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that when Jesus is around his disciples and they're trying to figure out, like they don't understand how he's still alive or, or they don't necessarily understand who he is, what Jesus does is something amazing. He tells them the scriptures. And what he reveals to them is how the scriptures talk about him. The author of Hebrews tells us that the Bible, the word, God's word, is sharper than any double-edged sword, exposing our deepest thoughts and desires. So here's what that means. I want you to think about it this way. If you read the Bible and you're irritated by what it, re- what it means, by what it says, the Bible is doing exactly what it was designed to do. You read this text well, I don't know if I believe that. It's 2023. I don't believe that. Hey, guess what? The Bible's doing what it's supposed to. You're supposed to be irritated by it. I'm not saying don't ask questions. There's a place for that. It's called small group. It's called being around other believers so that you can talk about that tension that you feel. You can enter into that space. And I want to tell you, if you're offended by the Bible, good, good. It's meant to offend you. It's meant to challenge your thinking because the customs and the behaviors of the world never will. The customs and the behaviors of the world are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. And the Bible's not going to do that. The Bible's not there for that. The Bible is there to confront you because the behaviors and the customs of the world are wrong. We have to know what the Bible says. So, so we gather together to, to hear God's word together. And again, of course, people are going to be mad about it. But This is what we do. We gather together to read, to hear, and read the Bible together. Here's the third thing. We gather to sing together. We gather together to sing together. This is Colossians 3.16. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. We gather together to sing together. As I was thinking about the difference between the behaviors and customs of the world as it relates to singing together and the behaviors and customs of Christians, as, um, as it relates to us singing together, as it relates to musical worship, I, um, I saw this post. I had a whole bunch of things written down about this. But then yesterday, I saw this post from Janae Denver on Facebook. Some of you may know Janae Denver. She used to be a part of this body, her and her husband, Greg, and family many years ago. And yesterday, Janae posted this, and I just thought it was perfect. So I deleted the 14 pages that I had on this topic, and I just posted her thing. We do not sing because we need a warm-up for the sermon. We don't sing because so people have time to get to their seats. We don't sing because we need to be entertained. See, these are the things that the world tells us that we need to do. We sing because God is good. We sing because God is worthy. We sing because it is a communal act of unity in which we declare the glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of grace. See, we sing because it's a communal act. It's something we can all do together. I know you've all heard the old pastor joke, we're supposed to be a joyful noise, not a beautiful one. We sing in community. We sing communally because it's something that we can all do together. And No one cares what you sound like. No one cares what you sound like. So when we sing, we have the opportunity to sing joyfully. Here's the fourth thing. We gather together to pray together. We gather to pray together. This is 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all those in authority, asterisk, unless you disagree with them. No, it doesn't say that. Pray this way for kings and all those in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. See, as a body, when we get together, we gather together to pray. And what the world would have us believe, the behavior and the customs of our world is this. If you really want to help someone, keep your thoughts and prayers to yourself. That's what the world says. If you really want to help someone, keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself. That's the behavior and custom of the world when it comes to prayer. Keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself. Well, let me tell you, Let me tell you about our grandson, Grayson. Grayson was born a little more than eight years ago. He was born with this medical condition called prune belly syndrome. He he was born without abdominal muscles. When he was born, he had multiple kidney and bladder issues that he has had to deal with for all of his short eight years of life. He has been in chronic kidney infection for years, taking antibiotics every single day, every single day, every single day. Whenever he fell or there was an injury, uh, he was consistently subject to urinary tract infections. So, at the slightest hint of a fever, it was pretty much we need to go to quick care. It was just constant. Battle for him. Earlier in 2023, he was, he was climbing on the monkey bars and he fell off him and, he, and he, he damaged his bad kidney even worse to where his, his kidney, this kidney was operating at 5%. And about three months ago, they, they went to a doctor in Lincoln who, who said, you know, we need to remove that kidney. We need to remove the bad kidney. And as long as the other kidney, the other kidney is at 65%. And as long as that kidney stays where it is, like we can, we can kind of manage that right now. But we need to, we need to remove that kidney. And just, just nine days ago, imagine the week after Christmas. Just nine days ago, our daughter and her husband took our, took our grandson, Grayson, over to, over to Omaha so he could have his kidney removed. That was on Friday the 29th. We, we shared, like on all of our social media things, because that's how we have lots of connections. We shared, "Hey, we'd really like prayers. We'll take your thoughts. We'd like prayers for this. On Saturday morning, the day, about 24, 20-ish hours after his surgery, like he didn't want to leave the hospital because he was in pain, and they wanted to it's weird um, kidney removal. You may not know this is actually outpatient. The only reason they kept them overnight was because they live in North Platte and the surgery, I want to get my directions right. They lived in North Platte, they live in North Platte and the surgery was in Omaha and they didn't want him to be in the car for that long. So they kept them until the next day. And like we went on to our little social media things and said, would you, would you please pray for Grayson? And, and so many of you did. And so many of you asked, like, last, Saturday, last Sunday morning, how's Grayson doing? How's Grayson doing? People ask me today, how's Grayson doing? How's Grayson doing? We FaceTimed with them on Friday. Well, Actually, we FaceTimed them a few times during the week. Um, Saturday, last Saturday afternoon, the previous Saturday afternoon, after the day after surgery, he had this remote control car that we got him. And he was laying in a chair playing with that. And it hurt him to laugh. So every time he would laugh, he would immediately wince because he wanted to laugh. It's kind of cute. So we tried to make him laugh even more. And we just saw him progress throughout the week. And then on Friday when we FaceTimed him, oh, seven days, seven days, seven days. He's like shadow boxing with his dad. He wasn't wrestling with him. He was like, he was moving around. He was shadow boxing with his dad. It was almost like he was a normal kid. And at one of the points, he turns to my daughter's phone and he says, Hey, Grandma, look. And he's like doing jumping jacks. Don't tell me that prayer doesn't work. Prayer works. Because sometimes prayer is the only thing you can do. Sitting in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, The Friday before last, knowing what was a four-hour surgery was going to be a six-hour surgery because of some complications that they had, the only thing we could do is pray. And the only thing that you did was pray. And prayer works. And the world tells us that what we ought to do is to keep our thoughts and our prayers to yourself. I don't need you to keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself. We need you to pray. We need to pray. We need to trust that God hears our prayers. We need to change our minds. So we gather to stir up one another. We gather to hear God's word. We gather to sing together. We gather to pray together. And we gather to celebrate the gospel in the ordinances. Now, we don't, we don't use that word ordinances very much within our church context. But here's, here's the definition for us. It's an established rite, that's R-I-T-E, or ceremony or a sacrament. So at Westway Christian Church, we practice two ordinances. We practice baptism and we practice communion. And both of these ordinances... This is important for us to get. Both of these ordinances are commanded to us by Jesus. So, as we think about the things that we do together as a church, we we see examples of them in the Bible that's, that's descriptive, it's describing for us, and that's the stirring up of one another, reading God's word, praying together, that's descriptive. But we also see some things that are prescriptive. We're, we're, we're told to do it. It's a pre- Think prescription. Think that word prescription. The Bible, God, is prescribing us to do things. And those two things are baptism and communion. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the instruction... Before Jesus ascended into heaven, that's the instruction that Jesus told his disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching these new disciples to obey all that I have commanded you. And I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. See, baptism gives us an identity. As we think about baptism. Baptism gives us an identity. Romans 6, verses 3 to 4 says this, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him with his, in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So it's in baptism that we find our identity identity. We find our new identity. We find our transformed identity. According to what this text tells us, prior to our baptism, like we were, we were dead. We were physically alive. We're spiritually dead. And then we go into the waters of baptism, whether it's back here or in the North Platte River or wherever. We go into those waters of baptism and we identify with Jesus in his, ready? In his death, underwater, burial, underwater, and new life. Right? We let people actually come up out of the water. Right? We don't hold them under, although we might want to hold some people under. Make sure. Like, are you really dead? right? Death, burial, and resurrection. This is what what baptism does for us. It gives us a new identity. It identifies us with Jesus both as a new person, as a new individual person, but it also identifies us as new people into one body of other new people. So as Christians, We're not just coming up out of that water as a new individualized, self-actualized, just baptized person. I don't think I could say that again. Like, that's not how, like, it's not just coming up out of the water and now it's just me sitting on my back porch with my Bible and my cup of coffee. That new identity places us into a group of other people who are also new. It identifies with us as a body. And maybe, this, maybe baptism is something that's new to you. Maybe it's something that you're, you've been thinking about for a long time. I can tell you when we were going to Marysville Christian Church, that was like the wackiest thing we had ever heard in our entire lives. So we did something crazy. We just asked questions about it. You can imagine what that must have been like to have me and your small group asking questions about baptism. I figured out a way to ask the same question 82 million times. And it was all, why do I have to do this? Like, no matter how, much, no, no matter how fancy I dressed that thing up, I had one question Why do I have to do this? And if that's you, I, I want to encourage you to ask that question. I want to encourage you to wrestle with that question. I want to encourage you to do those things in community. Be around other believers. And then the other ordinance that we celebrate here at Westway Christian Church is is called communion. The Lord's Supper. And it's in this ordinance that we find and we remember our hope. I would encourage you this morning, if you have your element with you, I would like for you to go ahead and take out your communion elements. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 to 25, Paul writes this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Here's the command. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper. Here's the command. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. drink. See, Jesus continues in the very next verse. He says, for every time you eat and drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So why is that hopeful? Why is that hopeful? Because Jesus, once dead and now alive, is not just remaining on his throne in heaven. Like, that would be one thing, right? If, I'm thinking if, if this is me and my sinfulness and I've died and I've been resurrected, like I ain't going back down there. Been there. They murdered me. Not going back. But what Jesus does is his plan is to come back for us. His plan is to return to earth and take us with him. This is the hopefulness of communion. We were dead in our sin and they're now spiritually alive in Christ. And we will be alive again. Physically alive, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. We'll be alive. And this ordinance, this communion, reminds us of the cost of our salvation. Did you hear what I said? This is this is my body. This is my blood. There's a cost for this salvation. And this helps us taste that cost. It helps us participate in that cost. It helps us see that forgiveness is real because the elements are real. See, regardless of the suffering and the hardships that we go through here, that we experience here on this earth, There's a meal in the future that we are going to be eating with Jesus. And this little piece of bread and little cup, like that's just a shadow of it. It's an appetizer preparing us for the real meal. There are two other reasons that we gather together. I know you thought the sermon was over. There are two other reasons why we gather together. I'm going to mention them, and then we're going to talk more about them in three weeks. Okay? The first is this, we gather to reach outsiders. And the second and final of the seven is we gather to scatter. We gather to go out. I want you to notice something about all seven of these things that we talked about today. There is nothing among them that requires a special gift, talent, or skill. There is nothing among the seven reasons that we gather that requires a special gift, talent, or skill. They are not nothing. They each have value. And God uses all of them. To transform us. See, the behaviors and customs of this world tell us that the gathering doesn't matter, that the gathering is unimportant in my Christian walk, that it's not something that I need. As we've said, the customs and behaviors of this world tell us that we can encounter God anywhere. We don't need this thing And those same behaviors and customs tell us something else. They tell us that if we're not actively doing something, then we have nothing to offer. This is such a deception. See, the customs and behaviors of this world tell us that when we gather together as a body, if we're not doing something, then our gathering doesn't matter. Our presence doesn't make a difference that I actually don't need to be here. And as I was kind of thinking about that this past week, I think I was up here this morning at 10.35. I think I'll be done in 10 minutes. What that practically means then, if, like, the only reason that it matters if I'm here is if I'm doing something, then I guess I should just roll into the parking lot at 10.33. And then the millisecond I'm done doing this, I should go out to my car and drive home. But we all know that that's not true. And that's not just because John's the pastor. See, we have fallen for this deception that because there's nothing for me to do, I don't need to be here. And our, frankly, our Sunday morning gathering statistics and our small group statistics bear this out. Because I'm not contributing, I don't need to be there. And I think as I've been pondering this and asking our elders to pray for me this week, I knew we were going to talk about this. I think when we fall for that lie, the only thing we indicate we believe is that we don't understand the gospel. We misconceive the gospel. That's the phrase that we used a few times as we began our first Corinthians series. The problem with the church in Corinth. Was they misconceived the gospel. They didn't understand the gospel. So because they didn't understand the gospel. That caused them to do things. That were not gospel friendly. And as Christians. When we misunderstand and misconceive. And don't believe the gospel. That causes us to believe all sorts of wacky things. Like, because I don't have something to do, I don't have to be to church today. Because I'm not serving, I don't have to go today. In this uh, past week, in response to something that I'd seen online, I asked a question on my Facebook page What is so different about the consistent gathering of believers that causes us to relegate our participation as optional, unnecessary, and or not dependent on our timeliness? I want to repeat that question. What is so different about the consistent gathering of believers that causes us to relegate our participation as optional, unnecessary, and or not dependent on our timeliness? What I found interesting as there were some responses to that question, um, no one actually answered the question. See, the real question I'm asking is uh, with the 82 million things that we are all involved and engaged in as a, as a necessary and normal part of life about our jobs and appointments we keep with other people and school and like every other aspect of our lives where our participation is not questioned, where our lack of timeliness is not questioned, what, what is it about the church And the gathering, that forces that into some sort of lower tier. Why is that the thing that goes? And again, there was lots of responses, but no one answered the question. And I think I know why. Because we're afraid to say, well, maybe it's just not that important. Maybe church is different because, because God loves me. I'm saved under grace. It doesn't matter if, I'm, if I go to church or not. Because I can sit on my back porch with my Bible and my cup of coffee. And I can encounter God that way. So this is a real question. So as I pondered this throughout the rest of the week. Why does the gathering matter? That's the ultimate question. Why does the gathering matter? Who cares what I say? Who cares what you say? What does the Bible say? Hebrews 12 verses 18 through 29 says this. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at that sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. Listen, this is the answer to the question, why does the gathering matter? Verse 22, No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn people whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for the vengeance like the blood of Abel. I'm just going to stop right there. Like, I read this text and I see what I am invited into when it comes to the gathering, whether it's a gathering on Sunday morning or gathering in small group or gathering with other believers. And like, this makes me want to run through a wall when I read this. When I see what I'm invited to, when I see what I am participating in as a Christian on Sunday mornings and in my small group night, like, this makes me really sinking excited what it means is that our worship of God is taking place on a much more massive scale than anything we can possibly imagine. There is more taking place here than anything we can try and wrap our minds around. A friend of mine earlier this week, pastor friend said this on Sunday mornings when we walk into the building, we're stepping into something that's already happening. We are stepping into a worship that's already taking place and we are participating in it. And here's the reality. I can't make you care about this. No one can make you care about this. But I can ask a question. And the question is simple. Why would you not Want to be involved and excited in this worship. Because I don't know what you think heaven is going to be like. It's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp, it's this. It is an eternal place of worship. And you know what? I hope there's mountains there. I hope there's a lake there. I hope there's a path that I can go run on there with shoes that never need to be replaced. But this is what we're being invited into. And if we're not involved and engaged and excited about what we're being invited into, we need to ask a question that just says, what does it say about us? What does it say about me? That God has invited me into this eternal worship of him, and my thought is uh i don't know not sure if i want to be there today i know next sunday it's going to be like minus 42 million degrees outside i changed it up for you next week we're talking about giving some of you are going to wake up next week and it's going to be, I'm going to say 82 million. It's going to be 82 million degrees below zero, and you're going to think to yourself, I don't know, it's a little cold, and I want this to pop up in your head. Or is it because John's going to talk about giving today? And I'm going to use the fact that it's cold as my excuse to not come to church. I'm sure you would never think that. At least not outwardly so we've been invited into something one more story and then i'm done in the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter, Jesus is having a meal in the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath. And it goes about as well as you would, as you would expect. If you're familiar at all with the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and talks to them, it like pretty much has the same, same sort of role to it. There's a, there's a guy there who needs to be healed, and of course it's the Sabbath. So everyone wants to know, is Jesus going to heal this guy? Is he not going to heal this guy? If he heals him, we're all going to be mad at him and tell him how, how much of a sinner he is. So, of course, Jesus heals the guy. Of course, the Pharisees get angry. And then they start to jockey for position about who has the best seat in the house. Jesus confronts them on that. Then he says this. This is verse 14 in Luke 14, 14. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, A man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Such a platitude statement. I'm going to give Jesus ear candy. I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear. Yeah, Jesus, I can't wait to eat with you. It's going to be awesome. Heaven's going to be amazing. Jesus replied with this story A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, this banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant he had done this, he reported there's still more room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. The master is inviting you to a banquet. I wonder, what excuse are you giving him for not participating? And do you understand the implications of that decision? Father, I pray that our mindsets would be confronted by your word. I pray that we would see that the gathering of believers is not nothing. I pray that we would see, I ask that we would see that the gathering of believers is meant to transform us. I pray that we would desire to be transformed. That we would see that all you're doing is asking us to come and eat. You're not asking us to come in here and do a dang thing. You're inviting us to come and eat. I pray that we would respond faithfully. It's in your son's name. Amen.